Welcome to Code Whack, your podcast on America's broken healthcare system and how Medicare for All could help. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. How are incarcerated populations faring during the coronavirus pandemic and what more can be done to protect them? I recently spoke to Dr. Nina Harawa, a professor in residence at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, to find out. Her opinions are her own. Welcome to Code Whack, Dr. Harawa. You've worked with incarcerated populations who have been hard hit by COVID. Can you talk about the susceptibility of incarcerated people to COVID-19? It's just been an absolute travesty how it is that incarcerated populations have been affected. Their rates of mortality from COVID are about three times that of the general population when adjusted for age. We've had these terrible outbreaks in you know, specific facilities, including San Quentin, where multiple people died within a few months. Incarcerated populations are extremely vulnerable, primarily because they can't social distance, right? They are in either dormitories or cells, generally with other people uh, that don't allow for social distancing. Even if you have protective equipment, I would doubt that people are going to sleep with masks on. I don't even know if that would be advised. And so people are living 24-7 in a setting in which there's that risk. Definitely needs to be more research on this, but my conclusions has been based on the way airflow and ventilation works in different settings. Even people in isolated cells seem to be at risk because there were several death row inmates in San Quentin who contracted COVID-19 and died. And they are, you know, in total solitary, you know, situations, but they still contracted. So either that was a ventilation issue or when there is some movement or contact with staff that that could have occurred. But we know that these populations are very much at risk, primarily for that reason. But we also know that there's been a lot of mishandling on the part of various prison systems. I've provided expert testimony related to some lawsuits addressing this. And I was actually really astounded by the level of what seemed to be sheer neglect and, and incompetence in um, some of the specific jurisdictions that I read about. For example, a bunch of people being pulled out of their cells, placed close like shoulder to shoulder while their cells were searched, and then, then being searched by a deputy who wasn't wearing gloves, wasn't wearing a mask, or was wearing the same set of gloves to search multiple. Actually, no, they were wearing gloves, but the same set of gloves to search multiple inmates. I read about a woman's jail where they reduced the number of people in the dorm, but then they said they all had to sleep on the bottom bunk. So, you know, you could like put one on the bottom, one on the top, and you could create some distance, but they were all told they had to sleep in the bottom. So even by reducing the dorm, you still put people close to one another. You know, there was a lot of reports of deputies who didn't wear the face masks, um, people being moved close to each other, even though they had symptoms. There are people you can find on Twitter who have smuggled cell phones and the stories that they tell about cellmates who are sick and are not getting medical attention are just heartbreaking. Another example was um, individuals in immigrant detention who were moved to like eight different facilities in a matter of months during the coronavirus pandemic. You could have a facility where there's no COVID-19 and you mishandle these transfers and now you have an outbreak, right? And so both the close quarters and then movement without, without real careful planning and mitigation efforts can be deadly, unfortunately. There have been some studies indicating that those with certain levels of vitamin D may fare better if they contract the novel coronavirus. 
do you think there should be an effort to ensure incarcerated people have enough vitamin D in their system? Or at least for better nutrition for prisoners, period. There's research showing that it, you know, leads to both better health outcomes, but also better management, you know, fewer issues with violence and other, you know, management issues within custody. So I think it has benefits that go, you know, beyond just health. I've read some of this research that you talked about, not maybe enough to necessarily say I could support it, but I think it's definitely worth considering. But, you know, I, I feel like that one of the biggest priorities right now is that prisoners need to be vaccinated. And that we need to have in that setting, I should be careful in how I say this, prisoners need to have the option to be vaccinated. Because we're talking about a setting where people often don't have options. There's a great potential for people to either be coerced or feel coerced into getting vaccinated. But I think we can use the same principles in that setting as we do in other settings to encourage vaccination and, and hopefully get to high levels of uptake. You know, we know for HIV, for example, once they, they you know, in, in settings in prisons and jails where they do kind of universal opt-in or opt-out testing for HIV that's voluntary, they actually get high levels of uptake, even when you make it voluntary. Um, flu vaccine, they don't necessarily get the highest levels of uptake, but I have a, we work with a provider in LA County who said their vaccine uptake for the flu this year was higher than prior years. And so she's feeling optimistic that her patients will actually be more likely to take the vaccine. So where is this population in terms of vaccination priorities? I don't know. There is a resource somewhere, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me. California has included, not in the first priority, and I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly which, I think I want to say it was 1B, but if you look at the LA County priority guidelines, people in, in custody are not mentioned specifically, so I, at all, like in any priorities listing, so I'm a little bit confused by that. In talking to my colleague again in the, in the sheriff's department, she said the providers have been vaccinated, some of the correctional officers have been vaccinated, but not all of them yet but the prisoners haven't had the option to be vaccinated yet. And she doesn't know when. So how do you feel about that? I think they should be, should have been prioritized by now, or at least there should be a plan. I mean, I certainly support that healthcare workers needed to be prioritized first. And, and it seems like some healthcare workers are still getting vaccinated or still were getting vaccinated this week. Um, but I feel like prisoners need to be close behind, given what we've seen already and given that they have limited options to protect themselves. Some other priority groups have are also very important, but have more options to protect themselves. But what we often see for people in custody is that they don't have those same kind of options. They might wear a mask, the person in a cell with them may not, the correctional officer may or may not. And so ethically... It seems unconscionable to me that we would not prioritize them, but I, you know, I know that we also have a lot of stigma around incarceration within our society, and that may be part of what has moved them down further on the list. Got it. And I imagine that this population has more chronic health conditions than the average population. Is that right? Yes. There's also in prison medicine. There's this often this practice of thinking of prisoners as older than they really are. They're older than their biological age because both incarceration and the kind of lifestyles that often lead to incarceration have a weathering effect on individuals. So, you know, I know doctors who work with patients who are incarcerated who start looking for age-associated conditions earlier because they seem to be more prevalent earlier in their populations. 
So obviously getting vaccinated is vital. Um, what other policies can you recommend that might help them avoid infection right now? The, the one that people have called for the most is reducing the number of people in custody so that it's possible for those who remain to socially distance. Some jurisdictions have done that. LA has reduced its custody population at least at one time by about 30%, maybe a little bit more than that. So, and, and that was, you know, through a combination of different efforts to reduce the numbers of people in custody. The protective equipment is really key. Access to cleaning supplies, uh, early, especially early in the pandemic, many reports and prisoners were saying that they did not have good access to soap, to cleaning supplies, etc. You know, and one of the, the things I, I wrote, I even pointed out, it's difficult if you look at the way even most prison sinks are, like that people have, it's hard to even properly wash your hands because there are those little push button sinks where you need to like hold one button there. And then you have these little bars of soap. And how do you adequately wash your hands for 30 seconds in that kind of environment? So there's many, many things that can be done, you know, ensuring that people have masks, really requiring that correctional officers are using them, ensuring that correctional officers are staying home if they're sick and that they're able to stay home if they're sick, properly uh, cohorting individuals as they come into a facility and testing them so that they don't you know, inadvertently bring COVID-19 into a new facility, limiting movements between facilities, and cohorting staff as well so you don't have one staff member who goes to multiple areas, say, of a custody facility, kind of ensuring that people sort of continue working in one area with one population so you limit that sort of mixing. Thank you, Dr. Harawa. Find more CodeWack episodes on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You can also subscribe to CodeWack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Kazar.